0: turn to the book of 1st Samuel. Uh, There should be Bibles in the pew in front of you that you can use this morning. If you do not own a Bible that is our gift to you You can take it home and also if there aren't enough Bibles that you see on that row, please let a deacon or elder know and we will purchase more of those. But again this morning we're looking at 1st Samuel chapter 4 and that was a a glorious extra hour of sleep this morning wasn't it? I get an amen for that. 1st Samuel chapter 4 as we continue through uh, the book of 1 Samuel. And we're beginning a new section as now we're leaving the, uh, the section that deals with uh, Samuel's birth and um, his early days in the temple, his call in chapter 3. Um, we see the, um, the words against Eli and his sons, the priest, as we see the prophecy that the priesthood is going to end at Shiloh and be given to another more faithful priest And now we're beginning a section of of chapter 4 through 7 that deals with the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord, and the Philistines, and the battles with the Philistines. So I will read all of chapter 4. You can remain seated. This is the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and they encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the, battle, on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us. Who could deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews. As they have been to you, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled. Every man to his home and there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, Am I he? I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? And he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains had come upon her. O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer, may the words of my mouth, meditations of all of our hearts together, be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here we finally have it. We have been hearing about judgment coming on Israel in chapter 3, or chapter 2 and chapter 3. And finally, the hammer is dropping, right? It's finally happening. Israel is, going, is de- being defeated. Eli and his sons are, are no more. It's finally happening. You know, a necessary part of true worship, when we come to the Lord and worship Him this morning, a necessary part of what we're doing this morning is saying to God, you are God and I am not. That's That's what we're doing visibly. When we gather together, we confess our faith and we worship and praise Him. What we're communicating to the world and saying to God is that He's God and we're not. That's a crucial, crucial part of what worship is. Saying, essentially, God, you don't need us, but we need you. Worship is glorifying to God. Don't get me wrong, but worship is really for us, it's to change us. And it's glorifying to God, yes, indeed, but He doesn't need us. We need Him. And think about it. It, it goes back to the very uh, issue of creation. Why did God create the entire world? Why, why are we existing right now? He didn't create the world out of any lack of Himself. He didn't. Have you ever heard somebody say, "Well, God created you and me. We're here because He was lonely and He needed a friend." That's not true. He's always been completely joyful in the Trinity—Father, Son, and Holy Spirit—in perfect communion. Each person of the Trinity eternally happy and joyful. So the creation is not an act of Him, uh, of any lack in Him, but it's. In other words, it's an excess of that joy that we are here because God is amazing and great and it's an overflow of his glory. He's not lacking companionship or love or joy. He doesn't need us, we, but we need him. And so a, a crucial part of what worship is saying is that he is God, we're not. We're distinct, we need him, we rely on him. We are dependent upon him. The great professor and uh, uh, the one who established the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, J. Gresham Machen, is quoted as saying, the more we know of God, the more unreservedly we will trust him. The greater our progress in theology, the simpler and more childlike will be our faith. You'll repeat that second half. The greater our progress in theology, the simpler and more childlike will be our faith. The more we know God, the more we will trust him. If you recall back in chapter two, verse 12, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. That was the condition, the heart of Israel during these days. They did not know the Lord. And if you do not know God, you will not trust him. And your faith will not be childlike. Israel stopped seeking to know God and therefore they stopped trusting him and they lost their childlike faith. See, we have a tendency sometimes to make faith in Christ in our relationship with God very complex. But that's not the way it should be. It should be as simple as believing and trusting in your your father and believing in him. So in our relationship with God, as his people, we can bank on three things taking place. And they're present in our text this morning in chapter four. Three things we can bank on in our relationship with God. The first is that God will give us trials. God will give us trials. Secondly, God will give us a choice. And thirdly, God will give us what is best. In our relationship with God, we can bank on those three things happening. And we see them here this morning. I'm going to work through each of those points this morning. And as I do, keep this thought central. This is the main point. That by taking us through trials in your Christian walk, with re, in your relationship with God, by taking us through trials, God gives us a choice between two things. Between seeking control and blessing apart from Him or giving our desire for control away and receiving His blessing. I titled the sermon, A God We Can't Control, because that is what Israel is trying to do with the ark. They're trying to manipulate and control God and to serve and worship him on their own terms. But we see that he doesn't, he doesn't allow that. So let's look at verses 1 through 10 and this idea that God will give us trials. Verse 1, we read in chapter 4, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And now Israel went out to battle... Against the Philistines. Who were the Philistines? This is the first time we read about the Philistines in 1 Samuel. What we know from history is uh, from Egyptian writings that they, were, they began, they came from seafaring people, uh, the Aegeans, the, the Greeks. And they traveled across the Mediterranean at one point, and then they began to live on the coast of Israel. And they would eventually become so numerous and entrenched in the area that the entire area, even today, would be called Palestine, which is rooted in the word Philistine. And they were known for having five cities Gaza, Escalon, Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron. We hear about these cities throughout the Old Testament. And so they, they had conquered these cities, and, they, uh, had, uh, and we read about them actually even in Judges. We first read about the Philistines in Judges 13. Uh, where, when we read about Samson. They had been enslaved to the Philistines back then for 40 years. That's why we read in our, ch- in our chapter in verse 9, it says, Take courage, men, and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. So in the past, the Philistines had actually enslaved Israel. But at this point, they were free from them. So as we continue to read 1 Samuel the Philistines become the main rival, the, the main uh, nation that they are going to uh, fight against throughout Samuel's days, throughout Saul's days, and throughout David's days. And obviously the most uh, famous enemy in all of 1 Samuel is Goliath, and Goliath was a Philistine, which we'll read about in coming weeks. And so this is the trial they're up against, right? They, we read in verse 1 and 2 that they are encamped against each other, and in verse 2, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So they lose the first battle. 4,000 men of Israel are killed. And so this is a trial. This is, they're unsure what to do. And they ask in verse three, and when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Why has the Lord defeated us today? Isn't that an interesting way to put it? That they realize that they're at odds with their own God. That God did this. And this is also hearkening back to the coming judgment. We've been, as I said, we've been waiting for this hammer of judgment to drop on Israel. If we go back to chapter 2, verse 34, we see the prof, uh, this man of God coming to Eli and giving him this prophecy. Verse 34, and this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the very same day. So Eli knows this is a word from the Lord. He knows that this is coming. And then when we go to chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, this is the word that Samuel hears from God. And on that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, and I declare to him, that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and did not, he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Do you remember what Eli's sons were doing? They were stealing sacrifices from worshipers and they were sleeping with the women at the temple. They were completely um, disregarding God. They did not know God. They were worthless men, it says. They should have been revoked from their office. But Eli favored them instead of the Lord. And so this is the punishment that's coming upon Israel as a whole as they lose these battles. And the elders ask, why has the Lord defeated us today? And as we read about this, I mean, this is God's judgment upon his own people. This is a difficult trial that they're going through. And we need to ask ourselves, what will we do when things go wrong? They could have changed course. They could have chosen a better option than what we'll talk about soon that they did. But what will we do as God's people when things go wrong? Well, there's a few reasons why we go through trials as God's people. The first is to correct and discipline. And that's really what we're reading about. This is the case in first Samuel that, that he is correcting, he is disciplining his people. Another reason, though, that we go through hard things is not because we need to be corrected or disciplined necessarily over an issue or a sin, but to grow us, to have us rely more and more upon him. Think of Job, the book of Job, if you've ever read that. That's an entire book about a righteous man, a godly man, trying to figure out why he's going through something so difficult and terrible and realizing in the end it's not about a sin he committed or didn't commit. It's about God's sovereignty over him, wanting him to grow and to trust in him more. But as Christians, we also have a third reason. And that is to put, the reason we go through trials is to put the sufferings of Christ on display for other people to see. You see, friends, God tests his children, not because he doesn't love us, but because he wants us to grow and he wants us to increase in joy and to trust him. And God promises. Now, this is this is serious. This is difficult sometimes for us to, to hear, but God promises to take you through hard things. Philippians 1, verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffer for his sake. There, We um, got to spend some time with a, a few couple friends of ours who lost their son, a teenager, last year. And it's been such a blessing to see how God is using them in the aftermath of that tragedy. And seeing how their faith is even stronger and their trust in God is even greater as they are sharing their testimonies with other people and how God has used their own tragedy and difficulty to help other people who are in the midst of the same kind of tragedy. So God will use that and put the sufferings of Christ on display for other people to see. I don't. Some of you know this, but Uh, We were back in January uh, just enjoying a a beautiful afternoon, three o'clock, sitting. I just had sat down in uh, my comfortable lazy boy in the living room and a a car almost comes crashing through my living room and hits our house and all the drywall is cracking and falling off and the house is totally wrecked. And in the moment, in the weeks, and in the months after that, uh, I had no idea why Uh, God had taken us through that. And I still don't have the mind of God, right? When we talk about going through tragedies or difficulties of of why he did that. But if God took us through that, if only for us to be more tired and exhausted and uh, anxious or or, or just dealing with difficulty and, 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 and not tragedy, it wasn't a tragedy, we were all fine. But God takes us through difficulty just for us to lean on him more. And that, is, that is the blessing of hard things. That if, if, if the only thing that came out of that were, were Hannah and I to pray more and to trust in him more, that would be a great blessing. Because it, 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 it links us closer to our God and our Savior. So he corrects us, he disciplines us when things are going awry, when we are straying away from him. He does it also to grow us, but he also does it to show the sufferings of Christ that we get to share with our Savior and suffer for his sake. So we get to share the gospel to people in that sense as well. The second thing God gives us, and we learn from this text, is that God gives us a choice. In the midst of the trial, in the midst of going through hard things that God takes us through, he presents a choice to us. What are we going to do in that trial? Well, let's see what the Israelites choose to do in verses 3 and 4. It says, and when the people came to the camp, this is after the first defeat, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. So, what is this covenant? Or, what is this ark of the covenant? Right? There is not much explanation about what it is. You really have to read Exodus and other books to understand what the Ark of the Covenant was. Well, essentially what it was, was a box. It was a box that Moses was commanded to, to build and uh, it had cherubim, like a- angelic beings on top of it with the wings that covered. And it, it was in the most holy place in the temple. It was to be in the most holy place in the tabernacle where, where only the great high priest could go in once a year and sprinkle it with blood, the sacrifice, on the day of atonement. And inside that box contained the Ten Commandments, the actual tablets that, that were, were etched of uh, uh, the commandment that re- resembled, right that symbolized the entire covenant that God had with his people. That's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant. And it's the most central place of temple worship. It's where God said to Moses, there at the ark, there I will meet with you. There I will speak with you. what God said to Moses in Exodus 25. So it's a central place of worship, but it's also a place, uh, an object that was used in central, uh, central places of redemption throughout Israel's history. So, for instance the Jordan River crossing. Of course, we all know about uh, the Red Sea crossing with Moses, but there was another water river crossing where, where God split the water in two and the people walked through. And that was at the Jordan River where they were about to cross over and toward Jericho. And in that scene, they're asked by God to bring, the priest to bring the ark into the river. And as they do, the water dries up and they can cross through and so it's this place of remembrance that God has been with them. And he's, he is always with them. But also Jericho. You remember they, they go around the city of Jericho with the Ark of the Covenant and go around silently six times. And the seventh time, they uh, play uh, their trumpets loud and, and yell and that's when the walls come tumbling down and they defeat Jericho. So another place that uh, God gives them redemption. So that's probably in the back of the, of the elders' minds, isn't it? That if we use this ark, it's going to provide redemption for us and salvation for us, just like it had in the past at Jericho. But what's wrong with their actions? What's wrong with their motivation? Look again at verse 3. Look what they say. Why has the Lord defeated us today? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. They say, so it, that, it, that can mean it or he, but I think it makes more sense to say it because that is their mindset, that they are using this sort of like a lucky charm. This, 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 this Ark of the Covenant, this is going to save us. Let, let's, let's bring it and it will save us. They were treating God and his holiness as something to manage for their own personal goals and success. Notice in all of this scene, the avoidance and the absence of Samuel. We know he's a prophet. We know he has God's word. Look back at verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. But did they consult with Samuel? Did they hear from him? Did he speak a word from God about this? No. They still didn't want to hear from God. They didn't want to hear from him. They wanted to do their own thing. What they're doing is a quid pro quo. This means something given or received for something else, a transaction. The religious leaders were operating under a transactional theology with God, if we just do X, Y, and Z, God will have to bless us with military victory if we do this. But did they think about their own sin? Were they thinking about their need for holiness, their need for prayer, or humbling themselves before the presence of God? No. They, to God, to them, had become a lucky charm, a rabbit's foot, a knock on wood kind of superstition shows how far they were from God and by the way did you know knock on wood comes from this medieval Christian practice to knock on the wood of the cross for good luck and so while they're practicing this Christians through the ages have also uh, treated the things of God with superstition and so as we think about this, this this is God's people doing this what things do we place in trust place our trust in Instead of God, what things do we place our trust in? Religious things or not? Instead of God, to get things from God. Well, as you know, Election Day is Tuesday. And how many of you guys are are really, just like me, very uh, tired of all the political ads? (laughs) Hannah and I were talking, I was telling her. I wish they would come up with a way, like, if you voted early, you wouldn't get any more political ads, right? I wonder how many people would actually vote early if the numbers would really go up. But think about that. We, we elect people sometimes because we want them to solve all of our problems, and we want to make everything a utopia. Well, as you vote on Tuesday, and if you haven't voted yet, I want you to do something. Notice... Your emotional response, depending on who gets elected, if your person gets elected, really take take uh, uh, understand how you or see how you respond to that. Are you elated? do you think uh, that, that this is going to be the greatest uh, whatever year or two years in, you know in the history of our nation because of who you elected, or if your person loses um, is this ushering in the worst time ever imaginable. Notice your emotional response. Often our emotional responses show us what we're really idolizing and placing our faith in. Now Jesus, I can't tell you who to vote for because um, nobody is named Jesus on, on the ballot. If he was on it, I would tell you who to vote for. So you have to vote your conscience. You have to vote after reading God's word and understanding biblical principles. Um, but are you are we putting our trust in political leaders to get things to get things from God? How about school choice? I know for parents, picking the right school is the most important thing. I picked this private school. Therefore, God must bless us, bless me as a family. I picked I picked uh, homeschooling and that is the most godly way and God must bless us as a family. Or how about I picked public school because that involves us in the community and it allows us to share the gospel more with people who don't go to church and God's going to bless us because of that choice. How about I sit under this pastor. God's definitely blessing me because I attend this church and I sit under this teaching or I listen to this person and their podcast on YouTube. I'm going to be blessed. But I think number one for most people what we put our hope in is our own personal achievements. What we have achieved. That I've, I've, I've served God for this many years 10, 15, 20 years therefore he owes me something because of that. Surely a life of ease is in the cards isn't it because I've served him for so long. Dale Ralph Davis I've been enjoying his commentary he writes whenever the church stops confessing Thou art worthy, and begins chanting, Thou art useful. Well, then you know the ark of God has been captured again. Instead of saying, Thou art worthy, are we saying, Thou art useful, God, for my own ends and my own success? It goes back to this idea that we ultimately want control. We want control. Like, I don't like it when things are out of my control. I and, and because when things are out of my control, I have to rely on God more. But guess what? God loves it when we realize we aren't in control and have to rely on Him more. when we let go. Well one thing I don't want to teach, and I actually want to teach against, is this let-go-let go, let God theology. I don't know if you've heard of it. it's very popular today, pop Christian teaching. Let go, let God. Have you ever heard that? Let go, let God. Well, I think it's wrong for at least two reasons. The first reason is, and this comes from a teacher named Jared Wilson, he says, A let go and let God as a problem solver is a way of suggesting that faith is a force field against trouble. When we say let go and let God to those who struggle, We must be careful we aren't suggesting to them that if they were stronger Christians, they wouldn't deal with such things. Let go and let God can inadvertently promote the idea that there are Christians and then there are Christians. That real Christians have ease. That's really the first issue that I see with it as well as that it's this idea that you won't have trouble, you won't have trials if you just let go and let God. The second issue, More important issue, reason it's a problem, is that it turns God into our servant to say that. Jared Wilson says, I don't know if you've noticed, but this sounds a lot like the Holy Spirit is our servant, a cosmic butler of sorts, rather than, oh, I don't know, the third person of the Trinity, and thus our God. He says, I get the heebie-jeebies when I come across language like this, which is a lot more often than I would like, Christians who ought to know better routinely begin statements with phrases like God can't or God needs. We're told that we need to let God do all manner of things before he can guide us, bless us, reward us, and so on. And to all of this, we ought to say that any God who needs us to activate him is not much of a God at all. God says in Jeremiah 32, look, I am the Lord, the God over every creature is anything too difficult for me. He doesn't need our help and he doesn't need our permission. One reason the serpent wished Adam and Eve to elevate their conceptions of themselves to God-like status is because he wishes by implication to demote the one true God to man-like status. Satan loves let God God language because he loves the idea of a deficient God. He will support any doctrine of God that is weak and unbiblical. So friends, have you fallen for this false theology of letting God, letting God do this or that in your life? And the real danger of it is it sounds true, this letting God theology. Why does it sound true? It sounds true, Jared Wilson writes, because we have smuggled a cause and effect kind of thinking, kind of spirituality into our Christian thinking. A cause and effect, which is more akin to the idea of karma and grossly misunderstands that God declares the end from the beginning and does whatever he pleases. That if we do this, he must respond. That we are the ones that let God And that's what Israel was thinking. So how does it turn out for Israel? Let's look at verse 5 and following. How does it turn out? So they're going to Shiloh. They get the ark, and they take it out to battle. Verse 5, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? So we, we see quickly that the Philistines are afraid. They hear the shouting, they hear the news that the Ark of the Covenant is there and they've heard the stories, right? They heard about Egypt. They heard about the plagues that happened with Moses and they're scared, but what do they say? Verse nine, take courage, O Philistines, be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So they're like, okay, we realize that these gods have showed up, Israel's gods have showed up, but we're going to fight. We're going to be like men and we're going to fight. So the Philistines fought, verse 10, and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home and there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers had fell and the ark of God was captured and the two sons, Eli, Hophni, and Phineas, had died. So here we read about really the only time in Israel's history that the Ark of the Covenant gets taken away and now we move into the third thing that god gives us that god will give us what is best so how do we understand what is happening here after this battle and this is a mighty defeat it's a great defeat they lose a lot of men most importantly they they lose the ark of the covenant which is not going to allow them to have god's presence or worship him correctly the glory we read about in verses 10 or 12 and following, the glory of God is, has departed. Dale Ralph Davis says in regarding this, that in Israel's defeat, Yahweh was defeated. He was unable to give Israel victory. And so Yahweh, to his shame, was a loser. But we know that on this day, that seemed to dishonor Yahweh, that Yahweh was in fact beginning to protect his honor and restore it. And so, think about this: that God is allowing the ark to be captured here. He's also, as He's doing that, He's also judging Eli in his house. He's also purifying his temple. That He has a plan for this loss, for this military loss. He, he's doing it for a reason. And so, we read that this this man of Benjamin comes from the battle. He comes to, he runs all the way to Shiloh, probably about twenty miles. His clothes are torn and dirt's on his head and he arrives and Eli's sitting on his seat by the road watching and he's trembling for the ark of God. And so the man comes into the city and Eli hears this, this crying out, he's wondering what's going on, he's 98 years old, he can't see because his eyes are set and the, and this man tells him that his sons have died and the ark has been captured and it's not about hearing his sons are dead that it makes him fall over. Notice it's when the ark, the news about the ark being captured, he falls over and he dies because he's old and heavy and his time of judging Israel is over. And so this is, um, it's, it's a sad state that, that Israel has came, come to this, but God is using this for his own purposes. Here's the gospel hope for us this morning, that even when we make bad decisions, even when we make that wrong choice, like Israel did, that Yahweh will begin to protect his honor and restore it, that he's got a good plan. And the point is that God will not be mocked. God had a vested interest in his name and his glory, and he'll not allow anyone, even his chosen people, to allow sin to go unchecked that this is what was best for Israel at this time. And then we get this final scene. Daughter-in-law, wife of Phineas, was pregnant. She gives birth. She dies in childbirth. Before she dies, she names the child Ichabod. I will say this. Hannah and I have have really struggled with finding a name for our child, but I will say Ichabod was never on the list. (laughs) Never was. Never came up on that app where you're trying to figure out what what to name your child. Um, And I've never met Ichabod. um, But what does that name mean? It literally actually means, where is the glory? Where is the glory? And she says, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark had been captured because her father-in-law and her husband had died. And what she says is true, but what she says is not the full truth because really the glory had already departed Israel even before the ark had been taken. The priesthood uh, was immoral. Israel was in a bad state. And so the enemy captures the glory of God. As we turn to think about what does this mean for us as believers? This is a long time ago, thousands of years ago. What does this mean for our lives today, right now? Well, think about this for a second. Can you think of a time when it seemed as though the Lord had lost? A different time. That the whole plan of saving his people was, was completely over without any hope. Well, many times in the, in the Gospels, Jesus repeated to his disciples that he would be beaten and crucified and killed. And each time, they either didn't understand or they outright challenged him like Peter did. Del Ralph Davis says, Yahweh will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. And Yahweh will allow you to be disappointed in Him or with Him if it will awaken you to the sort of God He really is. So I want you to consider how disappointing it must have been when Jesus died for the disciples. How they thought through that. The death of Jesus seemed like evil had triumphed over good. That this tiny little sect of Judaism had finally been stamped down by the Jewish leaders and the Roman government, and it was over. The leader of the movement, the threat, had been dealt with. Phew, he's done with. Jesus is gone. But little did they know that this was the plan all along. Peter and John say in Acts 4, talking to the leaders there, that truly in this city they were gathered together against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen to this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had destined to take place, God. This was all in the plan for Jesus to be killed and to be humiliated and to die. Little did those who killed Jesus on Friday know that the tomb would be empty on Sunday and change everything completely that he was willing to be disgraced, he was willing to be beaten and mocked and put on a cross, spat upon, stripped naked for you and I. That he went to that length because of his people, because he loved them and he would not abandon them. And so brothers and sisters, we get to worship a God who controls all things. That the glory of God of the Ark of the Covenant had been taken away. This was devastating to Israel. The, the, the Ark meant everything. And so what kind of hope were they going to have? We'll read about what God does in the coming chapters to restore His glory in Israel. But it's a picture of this coming glory, this coming glory of God that would literally give up His own Son for you and I. And we get to worship a God who controls all things. And for His people, that means He controls all things Bless us. He controls all things at his own expense, even his own sacrificial death for us. We read about that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where uh, they come to seize Jesus, and um, one of his disciples takes out the sword and cuts off the high priest, cuts his ear off, and Jesus says, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I can't appeal to my Father? And he'll send me more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus is saying, what I'm doing is intentional. That we have a God, we have a Christ who, though, in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he didn't account equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. That's the kind of God that we have. That we have a God who gave up his glory so that we so that he could give us what is best. And so for his people, what is best is a Savior that would die, but who would rise again and give us hope for eternal life. And so that's what we read. That's what we'll read in the coming weeks in 1 Samuel as we see the ark being restored back to Israel and as they await the coming king. Let's pray together. Father, we are amazed at the lengths that you go to take care of your people. Even when we are faithless, even when we reject you, you stay faithful to your promises. And you went so so far to take your only son and offer him up to die in our place and to give us everlasting life. There is resurrection, which gives us the hope of our resurrection and new life. So Father, would you remind us of your great glory and your awesome power to sustain us and to be with us in the trials that we face, in the trials that you give us. You will be with us. You'll protect us and watch over us And lead us on into glory. We thank you. In Jesus name. Amen.